Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, April 26th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to have a conversation. We are going to discuss some topics that are out in the world. We're going to evaluate them in the light of facts, wherever those facts may come from. And believe you me, they may come from some very dark places. But no matter what, we are going to do our best to be in good faith, you know, evaluate the arguments as if the other person is also trying earnestly to create a productive discourse. And hopefully, on this quest, we will keep ourselves and you, our loyal listeners, adequately informed. You know, Evan, I, I, I don't know about you, but I like my facts from the sketchiest places possible. You, you want some back alley facts. I want, I want some dirty back alley facts. You want I a want... guy in a trench coat opening up that trench coat and he's got a bunch of watches and facts for sale. Yeah, in the back, the, the, the facts are like, in a three times used paper bag, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's almost uh, tissue paper at that point. But, um, you know, we like to think that we try to be open to other people's points of views. We know we don't know everything. Um, we're only adequately informed. We're not the experts. You know, this isn't experts talk. Um, because yeah, go you know, to the Ezra Klein show for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have per- world class journalists talk with ac- experts like that's the Ezra Klein show. <laughs> um, <laughs> we are not on the show, and w- neither are we world class, uh, you know, journalists. So, um, but you know, we we like to try and extend a little bit of charity, try to interface with the facts in a real way. You know, maybe if it's not always in good faith, you know, we'll do a little steel manning, you know, trying to make a better argument than what they're making. But, but, um, we're not on the ivory tower and, um, we're not looking down on everybody, man, but wouldn't it be glorious? But anyway, someday, someday we're going (laughs) to kill a lot of elephants. Um, but Hey, Evan. Hey Joe. What do you want to talk about this week? Joe, this week I want to talk about the human tendency to discount the validity of subtraction in problem solving. Ooh. So I think that's pretty self-evident, so we can move on. Yeah, all right. Um, I want to no, talk no, about No, 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 in case it's... Oh. Okay, well, I mean, we can talk about... No, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> you, you tempted me with McDonald's, Joe. I, I almost took the bait. Um... In case that's not self-evident, I'm talking about a study that was reported on in an article by the Washington Post this past week, which was sort of a meta-analysis of eight different psychological and behavioral studies that evaluated how humans solve problems by using either methods of addition or methods of subtraction. And what these studies found was collectively, that it seems like humans default to trying to add pieces to a situation, to introduce complexity to solve a problem, even if subtracting and reducing complexity actually makes the problem solved more efficiently. And there are two studies that they describe in the article that I think are extraordinarily revealing. So the first 
involved asking participants to look at a big grid composed of squares. The squares were either colored white or colored blue. And there was a big cross of squares. So there was a line of blue squares going vertically and a line of squares going horizontally. And then in the top left-hand corner, there were four blue squares that were not replicated in any other corner of the grid. The participants in the study were instructed to make the image symmetrical, both vertically and horizontally, by changing as few squares as possible. They could either change white squares to blue or blue squares to white. The simplest answer and the correct answer based on the paradigm of the study is to simply take the four blue squares in the top left corner and flip them to white. So it just cancels out that square and everything is symmetrical. However, over half of study participants instead created blue squares in all of the other corners to make it symmetrical that way. They were correct, but they were not doing it in the most efficient way possible. They didn't get the high score. Exactly. They, they lost too many points. And so, like I said, over half of the participants would fail because they had a propensity to want to add and introduce things into the environment, even when subtracting and taking away was more efficient. The other study is even more interesting to me. Participants were given a Lego house and were told to either add or remove bricks from the house to allow the a Lego roof to sit flat on top of the house. The entire house was even except for one brick that was sticking up and making the roof lie slanted. So clearly the easiest solution to make the roof lie flat is to remove that single brick that was sticking up. And yet 60% of respondents built an entire additional layer to make everything flush with the brick that was sticking up, rather than just removing the brick and placing the roof on top. And that may seem reasonable to you, doesn't matter too much, but then they introduced another layer to the study. Some participants were told that the amount of money that they would receive for doing the study was contingent upon the number of bricks that they added. The bricks that they would add to the structure would effectively cost them money. It would reduce the amount of money that they were paid for participating in the study. However, the participants were explicitly told that removing bricks was a free action and would not harm their economic interests at all. Under these conditions, still 40% of respondents opted to build the extra layer of bricks instead of removing the single free brick. Across all of these studies, what researchers have found is that humans tend to associate good ideas and positive ideas with connotations of more, addition. These are words that are viewed as positive. When we have something more, we assume that it's good. And the authors were careful to say that subtraction is not the solution in every scenario, but it seems as though it's something that we don't even put on the table. Now, what are the implications of this? 
it seems that a lot of issues in our society suffer from overcomplexity, be it different federal regulatory codes or tax codes or complex structures of social welfare programs. We don't believe that we can simplify things and improve them that way. So we add on layers and layers of complexity, even when this is not the optimal solution. And so what I want to take away from this, it kind of buttresses something that I already have thought about and believe that simplicity should be an important heuristic considered when evaluating the success or failure of a potential solution. Things that are simple can sometimes work very well. Again, not exclusively, but many times, and they are often discounted. So that's when I think of a program that I support, such as Universal Basic Income. It removes a lot of the layers of complexity from the welfare system and from benefit structures and simplifies it down to one thing. And that is something that I really like about that policy proposal. Again, this these studies don't necessarily inherently prove that universal basic income is the most effective way of assisting people within a citizenry, but they at least should make us reevaluate the degree to which we put complexity and addition on a pedestal. So, Joe, I, I know you want to jump in here. What, what are your thoughts on all this? I agree. All right. So back to the McDonald's talk. Yeah. McDonald's talk. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this is um, this is it, it's an interesting study. I think. I think this is like almost a like confirmation of, um, you know, human, you know, species wide, small C conservative tendencies where we like to believe that there's some truth, like some weird truth in the way the world is as we found it. So we feel like that in order to make a positive change, we have to add to it instead of take away from it because like because if, whatever was already there is good yeah there was some inherent yeah. truth to it like like you know the the brick in the lego house like maybe people came and saw on it and then like oh they just didn't get to building the last layer of legos or something like they believe that there's some inherent truth about it Whereas, like, there was just an extra Lego. Um, but, yeah, so, like, this piece, it, you know, it went into a bit of talking about, like, regulation and stuff. And, you know, there's, like, a, you know, there there's a ton of, like, PragerU videos out there that are, like, about, like, bad government regulation. And, like, yeah, like, <laughs> over overburdensome government programs that are complex and all that kind of stuff aren't super great. Like, is it great that maybe for your specific business, there are like three regulating bodies that have rules on how the kitchen door is supposed to be mounted? Like, yeah, that's kind of complicated and not super great. Um, you know, uh, and, but then with all of those, the, the pitch is regulation bad 
versus we should do a better regulation. Um, exactly. I am not, trust me, anyone who's been listening to this show knows, I am not anti-regulation. I, I love a strong system of regulations. But what the study does is call our attention to ways to reform the regulatory code that might involve overlooked subtraction. I, I think just like one thing that ends up happening in the, you know, politics of it all is that, you know, I mean, both Evan and I are kind of on the left, but, you know, there are some things that people on the right will say that have merit to it. Like, you know, over overburdensome regulation is bad, but like because their stance is we should get rid of regulation it's a lot harder politically to be like align yourselves with them, but like have a different endpoint in, you know, <laughs> in mm-hmm. mind. Like it's hard to be like, I, I align with you that, um, this, the, you know, uh, the regulatory burdens here are too much or that this is too complicated, but I think we should fix it while you think we should just get rid of it. <laughs> like, that's a kind of hard, tenuous relationship, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, uh, you know, you go to the store with someone who didn't even want to go and you're like trying to op- optimize your shopping strategy when they didn't even want to be there. Like, you know, <laughs> they, they aren't going to be super helpful. Yeah. Um, so um, I definitely believe in the powers of simplicity um it's good you know like oh shit like i remember there was you know kind of the antithesis of this was like i remember this was a joke from the uh the 2020 primaries but it was like that uh kamala harris program where (laughs) you know we'll we'll forgive pell grants for people who open a small business in a disadvantage community for three years or something like that and you know you could hear that program and be like you know what that seems like something that you know should you know that that seems like good on the merits but then you you run the numbers and that like applies to six people out in the country only four ender end up knowing about it and only one ends up going through the process of applying for that grant you know like yeah um, but whereas, you know, um, I remember, oh, what was it? There was something where, um, oh, that this was like back during the financial crisis, you know, the, the great recession. And there was something where like a credit card company or one of the banks had to like solicit, you know, had to proliferate the information that consumers were available for like, I don't know, some rebate or money back or an extension on something, or I I forget exactly what it was. And a lot of places, you know, sent a um, bland formal letter, you know, like just kind of junk mail, you know, one of those things where it's a big letter full of text and, you know, nobody has time to read it. And, you know, they got very bad uptake for it. But there was one bank who had really good uptake for it and, you know, asked why they had such better response rates. And it was because that they had their credit card marketing department 
bring you know mm. whip up the 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 mailer for it so people responded to it better <laughs> i mean that's you know a difference of kind but then just also like a simplicity like i you know there have been times at my work you know i manage um truck drivers and it's not specifically where i'm at now but there i've been at other places where it's like <sighs> You know, they, they want to try and tell the driver every little thing every single day. And it was like, just, just, just give it a rest, man. Like if you're bombarding people with information every single day, they're going to tune it out. <laughs> and then when you actually have to get it out, then they're not going to listen. But, you know, so that's kind of like more simplicity and communication. But I mean, that it's kind of a different thing, but. No, no, I think there's a direct connection to it. And I really like where you've taken this because something that is really important is that the tendency to favor complexity and addition to simplicity and subtraction really applies to people on the design end of these types of solutions. It seems pretty exclusively that the end user always favors simplicity. They, they talk about in the article how the example they give is uh, Medicare. And Medicare is a very complex governmental program, but it was consciously designed to feel very simple and operate simplistically for the end user. And that's part of why it has been so popular. So in addition to just sort of the psychological quirk that allows us to discount roughly 50% of our potential problem-solving solutions, we also have to remember that if we are able to keep things simple, like, that's just what people like. I like that. I'll I'll speak for me. (laughs) I mean, shit. I mean, part of the reason why I, like, I don't know, don't go get, like, doctor checkups and all that stuff as much as I should because... Shit, that all that shit seems complex. Yeah. Like, like how, you know, how do I get a doctor? What's in network? I I don't want to go through all this and someone be like, oh, no, you can't do this. Or even worse, they just let me go through. And then all of a sudden I'm paying full, full price, you know, or something Mm -hmm. like that. There's there's just a big opaqueness to it. And, you know, it prevents me from like using it as much as I should. Um which and some cynically, would... you know, that yeah, it could be the point, you know, yeah. to design an obtuse system so that people won't use it and the system designer saves money. But I would like to hope that at least for some sort of governmental program or some program that is explicitly designed for the collective good, that that wouldn't be our aim. That's my hope. That's where I'm trying to push us. I mean, shit, like, you know, a lot of states like anti-abortion efforts are just like the addition problem. Like, like, oh, we're going to mandate that um, abortion clinics have to have hallways that are however long, (laughs) where it's not the simple uh, subtractive fix of just saying no abortions or, you know, taking that out of the book, but it's just, you know, in- increases uh, regulatory har- you know, harassment or burden or however you want to say in order to, you know, and this time it's a goal to make it, it more burdensome, but the same sort of thing happens in things that we don't want to be more burdensome. Um, yes, just by or that accident. the designers don't want to be more burdens. Burdens, right? So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, 
shit, I mean, you know, you add complexity to things. Like, I don't know, what if every time you had to drive your car, you also had to do like a handstand and like verify <laughs> verify that you have a driver's license and get a get a, a security code on your phone and all this stuff. Like, I don't know, that would put up a bit of a barrier to people driving. Whereas, you know, just hopping in your car and turning on the keys, that's it's good enough to go driving. So I don't know. Yeah. Just, and just... and <laughs> it's funny because um, you talk about like getting a code on your phone. This is kind of true of email servers, especially for colleges and universities that require two factor authentication. I feel like I would check my email less frequently after they instituted two factor authentication because it's it's like, oh, gosh, I have to be physically with my phone to get the code mm. and I have to put it in and I have to open an app. And so <laughs> you really ask yourself, how worth it is it for me to check this email? And it's a low stakes solution. But if the alternative is like, hey, do people get health care? Do they get regular checkups? We should be more invested in trying to find simpler solutions for those yeah. types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Make things simpler and people will do them like full stop. Like, I mean, um, I think a lot about these, um, you know, I'm active or, you know, I like to follow the housing kind of policy world. And it seems like there are a number of kind of more liberal cities who think they're going to like they're going to get to more affordable housing through more regulation when it's really just a supply problem <laughs> and it's like, Oh, and then, so we're already not going to allow enough houses to be made, but we're going to mandate that X percent have to be, um, you know, uh, you know, below market rate or this or that. And then there's going to be an environmental review. And I swear to God, if this costs one goddamn shadow on one public space, I mean, you just fucking forget it. And it's like, well, you know, if you wanted more housing, then, you know, you you would let more houses be built. But, you know, I guess they don't see it that way. But, but. yeah, I mean, well, it, it's powerful interests. I think that might be the case of it, there's powerful interests that want it to be complex because it protects their housing values, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but even as I a think, yeah. as as even as a homeowner, I can recognize that um, the push to make more Americans homeowners just creates a lot of bad societal um, incentives <laughs> of of the the people in general. Um, you know, towards more uh, restrictive land use. Um, you know, trying to fight for the value of this thing that you own. Because so many people own it, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's it's bringing the bourgeois to the masses in some ways, you know, <laughs> those concerns. So and they're not always best for society as as a whole. But anyway, so anyway, I think the what really astounded me about this, why, why I wanted to talk about it is because it spoke to this bewilderment that I have sometimes about people who design policies or people who propose policies and even talk about policies who seem to insist 
on making 80 million different little carve outs within them to accomplish a goal that could be done more simply and there is a deep psychological root it turns out and again not to say that subtraction is always the best but now that i'm aware of this and hopefully now that all of these listeners are aware of it i hope that when you are trying to solve problems in your own life either if you have access to some sort of public forum or even just things that you're trying to work on for yourself consider simplifying consider subtracting because once you're aware of it you can actively combat the natural tendency to always favor addition yeah just just uh, recognize that it's a tool in the toolbox oh yeah gotta have gotta have that toolbox gotta have a lot of tools in the toolbox Not i've got a hammer. hammer i've got a screwdriver i've got a tape measure can i build a house i guess you could that's the Yimby spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Evan, you, you want to build a house with your three tools, you go right ahead. I mean, really, if you don't have a saw in the mix, then the tape measure is kind of redundant. But, <laughs> but I mean... It's a really could. sharp tape measure. The metal's real <laughs> thin. <laughs> it's, it's the first ever combo tape measure and circular saw. <laughs> circular saw. <laughs> or bandsaw, sorry. Uh, so, Joe. Yeah, Evan. What do you want to talk about? All right. So, what do I want to talk about? Um, I want to preface this. Like, the ideas that I'm about to espouse are like half-baked, quarter-baked, eighth-baked. But... I don't know. It's just some like I want there sometimes on this show, this all kind of ends up being a little book reporty where, you know, we have something and we do a little research, but, but I also just kind of want to like spitball a little bit, you know, spitballing's fun, you know, bounce some ideas back and forth. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about like victimhood lately. It's something that we've seen in, um, society a lot or you know people will claim that we see it like people will gesture that you know one group is a victim and then and then you know i and another one will be like but no i am and it's just i don't know it's just i was thinking how it's interesting how people will be receptive or not to other people's claims of victimhood And it got to me like wondering, like, kind of how are there different, you know, how we differently relate to people's claims of victimhood. Like, you know, if I met someone and, you know, they had been raped and, you know, and had, you know, serious things like that, you know, I am pretty readily there to like accept their claim of victimhood in that manner. But like, there are some people who wouldn't and, you know, it's just kind of like what, what conditions would that be for people to accept someone's claim of victimhood? And I always thought like, um, I don't know, just kind of like, 
I was thinking like the Colin Kaepernick situation where it felt like, you know, we would, you know, he was protesting at football games and, you know, people like Evan and I saw it as, you know, a decent thing, a perfectly legitimate thing. And, you know, uh, I don't know if we would necessarily frame it as him claiming victimhood, but there was a whole lot of people there, you know, who were against it, who saw it as claiming victimhood. And, you know, it was like this guy who's like, um, you know, so, so has so much money. He's in the NFL. How could this guy be protesting anything? How is he the victim in anything? And, you know, it got me thinking, you know, it's like there is, you know, if you don't immediately just outright accept someone's claim of victimhood, there is kind of like this additional path where someone you can like um, acknowledge your privileges and stuff. And then that will help, you know, um, you know, people accept your claims of victimhood. Whereas like, you know, Colin Kaepernick just doing it, you know, it's some people would be like, oh, he's rich, he's famous. But if Colin Kaepernick was like, oh, I'm rich, I'm famous. And then I have all these other things, then maybe, you know, those other people would have maybe come along. But I'm not saying that that he should have or needed to, but just kind of thinking or like one specific case I've I've been thinking of is like sometimes and there's like a meme in uh, people who are feminists who where they'll say, you know, like put something out on social media where they'll be like, oh, this thing happens to women X percent of time or, you know, whatever have you. And then there will be some guy who will go in and be just like, what about men? And, you know, in that context, you know, that person hasn't ever like really fought it for men or probably done activism on the cause or anything like that. But, you know, they're just wanting to use it as a rhetorical viewpoint and then that'll be dismissed. But people will be like, oh, are you just dismissing the claims of men? And it's like, well, if it was a situation where like someone came and, you know, examined their privileges and acknowledge those and then also claimed that this additional thing is, you know, leading to persecution or feelings of victimhood, then I feel like a lot of people, you know, feminists in this specific example would come around and be okay with that. It just requires the acknowledgement of privileges and then there are, you know, the other parties issues, but I don't know. This is just something I've been thinking about. Do you have any thoughts, Evan? <laughs> so I have a question that I think will help to clarify the nature of this discussion before I wade in. So I, I want to mm-hmm. get a better sense of what we're talking about when we talk about victimhood. Because I think that there's kind of two strands that are related but need to be separate for the purposes of this conversation. So there's victimhood, sort of an interpersonal victimhood, like I experienced a trauma and I was the victim of that. And then there's a more social perspective, like I am in this marginalized group and that victimizes me on a systemic level. So what what are we kind of dealing with here? I think it's probably more the societal ones. I mean, this is where it seems to come up more with, you know, like I texted you this, but a lot of this like came up from a, just a stupid thing that I saw in my head. You know, I'm a balding man and I was like, nobody talks about hair privilege. 
but like um, nobody really talks about it because it's not really a thing that's super like important vis-a-vis other issues and other privileges that I have. So like I can't like base my or it wouldn't be seen as valid to base my, uh, you know, a lot of my struggle as, you know, being uh, without hair. But like it would be, you know, if in the con, you know, if I relinquish in the context of everything else that then I also don't have hair, there could be room for more empathy or, you know, being able to see it as something that is valid. Well, I think we play a dangerous game when we try to quantify which of our identities and their associated privileges or disadvantages are more valid to a broader society. You know, we're all composed of this multitude of things that propel us forward or hold us back. And speaking of them in sort of a generalized way, I think is an exercise in kind of spinning your wheels. You know that that game you play where it's like if you've done this, if you've had this privilege, take a step forward. Oh, yeah. And if not, you can Ugh. take a step back. I think those are so useless as an exemplary tool because you could play that game for a million years and never ask the same questions and you could two people could play the same game twice with different questions and wind up in wildly different places because what matters is what you select for and then what you leave out and so i think in this specific type of discussion we kind of either need to have it on sort of this grand societal level where we talk about fundamental identitarian contexts like race or gender or we need to have it down at the granular level where you just kind of reach out to someone you know and say hey however you're feeling marginalized is valid and i'm sorry for that and i'm sorry that you feel this way i'm sorry you feel this victimhood and you know society be damned if they don't accept that as valid for you because kind of the intermediary between those two things is kind of trying to cook a very imprecise recipe of like well i think that you know my my maleness and my whiteness and my educated status does this but then my baldness and whatever else I want. Like, have you, uh, did you, have you ever seen one of those images? That's like the, uh, like the privileged scorecard. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically (laughs) the, the image version of that dumb game that I hate. I, I, I think more what I was kind of going along, maybe like even more so like less from victimhood. I was thinking that like, like sometimes we just accept people's claims about their situation just outright. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, like you and I are just kind of temperamentally more, uh, accepting of people's claims that their life has been like affected by racism or sexism or stuff like that, Mm -hmm. where, and then, but other people won't, and they see it as bad faith, as like trying to claim those as something that like is against your life. 
And I guess the really only one thing is that maybe that there's like some other avenue under which like a little bit of explanation to someone who is not initially accepting of claims of issues that there could be like a discussion of other things going on in their lives and how that like relates. So let me ask you this. Do you think that the tendency for a person to discount another's claim of experience of victimhood, do you think that that is innate, that has always existed, or do you think that that's a function of polarization? Because where I'm going with this is that, and maybe I'm wrong, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I think that maybe we're just at a point where because our country is so polarized politically and because our political polarization is bunched largely around racial and social polarization that people might be more accepting of these types of claims in nature, but you have to toe the party line and you just have to sort of reject claims yeah. of victimhood when they fall along certain lines. It's, it's like um, Iglesias wrote about this today. I'm sure you saw it where he said, you know, 10 months ago, we all saw George Floyd get murdered. And even people like Mitch McConnell were saying, holy shit, that guy's guilty. Yeah. But because it got fed into this polarization machine, when Derek Chauvin was rightfully found guilty, you have assholes on Fox News saying that the jury was intimidated into finding him guilty, despite the fact that it should not be a partisan issue that a murderer was sentenced to jail. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know that I mean, was a long way of saying it, but yeah, yeah, yeah jump in. I mean, there could be. I mean, there could be part of that. Um, um, like definitely like one thing that also was like spur of this idea was like, you know, I, I swear there's a lot of times where like the conservative punditry out there will make a claim that people on the left do things like. Like, I remember Safe Spaces was a big one. Like, they relent, you know, there was a relentless mocking of like college students for wanting safe spaces where they weren't like going to be attacked for, I don't know, their kind of base existence. And then, <laughs> and then, and then what happened? Like, all the conservative pundits created their own safe spaces. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> they, they went and created their websites, their own podcasts, their own media ecosystem where they could, you know, do their own thing. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like that with, you know, claiming a victim, you know, they see these people where they, you know, maybe think, you know, maybe it's in bad faith, maybe it's in completely good faith where they think, Oh, they see these people out there and they're trying to claim a victim and I just don't buy it. You know, they have this X, Y, and Z going on, you know, how could they be a victim? And so then also then they start claiming the victim, you know, whatever, whatever thing Ben Shapiro is a victim of today, <laughs> you know, like whether it be the matriarchy or, you know, I, I, you know, whatever, what have you, or high lumber prices. I, I don't know what that whole thing was about <laughs> on Twitter. I loved it. Picture of I Ben Shapiro. Know. 
there was, you know, lumber prices have been going up and there's a wide conspiracy out there that people say inflation numbers aren't actually what they are. And lumber prices have gone up like exponentially lately. So I don't know why he like, I don't know what the stunt was, but he like went to Home Depot and bought like a kind of smallish bore board and had it in a Home Depot shopping bag. <laughs> like a piece of lumber (laughs) and was like showing it you know did a little video out in front of home depot with this piece of wood in a bag (laughs) like that was way not big enough for it (laughs) to be useful so you know and you know i just think it's ridiculous for someone like ben shapiro or someone of that ilk to claim a victimhood mentality because i see you know all of the other privileges that you know he has but you know if if uh you know if i were to have an earnest conversation with ben and like you know he was like yeah you know i got all these other things going on but you know it really gets me that i'm like short and people make fun of me for that and you know it like hurts me then like yeah you know i could see that so all right all right here's 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 the the thought that i'm having here's what i think is missing from this conversation is that i i think it's unwise to try to establish a universal sense of victimhood because victimhood in the way that we're talking about it right now is inherently situational you know for example um you know a a black man is dealing with the police certainly has a right to feel victimized when compared to a white man who is in the same situation but a black man who benefits from male privilege when he's up for a job against a black woman obviously makes less sense to try to claim that he is a victim relative to that scenario so i i think you know, saying that Ben Shapiro shouldn't claim a victimhood kind of uh, aura is really only kind of telling half the story because you're absolutely right. For for the most part, Ben Shapiro is an obscenely privileged asshole. And I think in all contexts, he's still an asshole. Right. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, if there was that one context where maybe, you know, he feels slighted because of his height or because of the fact that he's a dumbass, then maybe we could have more sympathy for that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting how it all works together. And, you know, there there's a lot of heat out there, you know, and a lot of people feeling like they've been wronged, um, whether rightly or wrongly. But- well, here's the thing, Joe, is, is I feel like, within our lives we all have been wronged yeah in a lot of ways by a lot of social structures and i think that again it comes down to people who struggle to disentangle the social from the personal so if you say hey all of this racial justice is happening where's my justice for all the things that i feel bad about yeah i think you're trying to ask for a systemic solution to an interpersonal problem and maybe that's what people need to realize is that you get to feel 
bad about whatever you feel bad about, but that doesn't mean that attempts to right systemic wrongs are somehow invalid. Does that is that maybe where we're going with this? Partially. I, I didn't really have anywhere I really wanted to go with it. I was just No, no, we didn't we didn't have a direction, but is that where uh, we're ending up, you know? Like, I mean maybe. Like we, you go for a walk, know. you end up at the 7-Eleven. You, you didn't necessarily yeah. set out for the 7-Eleven, but if you're there, but Did you we know. subconsciously go to the 7-Eleven? Damn. Now now we're in a whole thing. <laughs> oh. Um, no, but, we ended up at a McDonald's is where we really ended yep. up. <laughs> uh, bringing but, it back. Yeah. I, yeah. It's just... I don't know. It's just... Uh, I mean, if any... I mean, you could also, like you know, just replace the word victimhood and all of this and like turn, just put the word identity in there. And like the conversation mm-hmm. isn't a whole lot different. Yeah. Like, Oh, I don't accept your identity, but if you go through and explain it, then, Oh, I guess, you know, I guess it seems a whole lot more reasonable. Um, I mean, shit. I mean, I feel like a, a, a good number of things are like that. I don't know. It's just complicated how we all relate to each other. And I feel like a lot of times there'll be resentment because people will feel like they're not being heard on something. And then they hear, you know, they see somebody else getting heard on their specific thing. And they're like, wait, what? Like, you know, (laughs) you know, this somebody may use this that I, I like justify racism, but like, you know, I, I live in a small town and I see a lot, you know, a lot of people, who feel like the world kind of left them behind and it ends up, you know, sometimes that gets turned into racism, like a sort of resentment, you know, it's like, Oh, these people are getting like the special case. Like we're a special case too. Why aren't we getting this? Um, it's just, it's just interesting on how resentment and all that kind of stuff works and just, it's bad. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that what what you're talking about is really valid because class is kind of the uber category, right? And yet it's also the one that it seems like we're reluctant to talk about, you know, even even earlier in this conversation, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we talk about broad social things like race and gender. I didn't even talk about it yeah. when in many ways it's extraordinarily salient to everyone. Yeah. Um, there is uh interesting I mean one of the recent Ezra's I mean wasn't one of the cast like wasn't what wasn't uh a recent guest her book was like about status or something like that's that's an interesting it's been an interesting subject to me because like we talk we try to talk like I feel like all of these things that we talk about like gender race and class all kind of are different ways of trying to get at this kind of broad or this many faceted multi-layered thing that is status and i don't know it's just it's it's one of those things that's so complicated and you know it's it's you know if you just kind of have this broad status thing versus class or race or gender then then it, it it's it's all of a sudden a whole lot murkier but but you know it may be the greater measure but we just don't know 
Well, I think that another way to talk about status is to talk about power, right? You know, if you have status is essentially a function of how much power you can exert on your surroundings, power being the ability to see your will enacted in the world. And power is, of course, modulated by class, by race, by gender, by baldness, you know, by everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can and I so get that's, into this is, Yeah, go for it. There, there, there's an interesting dynamic where a lot, it, it, this comes a lot across in the discourse sphere where like journalists and like, people who are YouTubers and like media people who, you know, peddle in putting opinions out in the world like that as their job, like there, there gets to be into this weird thing where, you know, like maybe a journalist maybe only makes like, I don't know, $40,000 a year, but like they have this power to get their thoughts out into the world Mm -hmm. where people who are much, you know, people will have a disdain for them for having that power and how they choose to wield that power. Yeah, real jealousy almost. Yeah, like where there could be somebody who makes like significantly more money than any, you know, a journalist or like a YouTuber or something, you know, someone with a following, but could feel like they have a lesser status than them just because, you know, you know, uh, uh, Dylan Matthews at Vox gets a fuck ton of people reading his shit every week. And like, nobody's listening to my ideas, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, they have all that power. And that I, I think that's why, you know, we, we are in a unique period where there's like more visceral hatred for the, the kind of journalist reporting class. But I mean, there that that kind of stuff is always in the background where it's like, yeah, yeah. I think about it. I'll go, fin- finish your thought. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, it's these people change. who otherwise don't wield power get to wield this extra power that people don't always see as legitimate. I'm thinking about it this way: is that we all want to feel heard, right? And so. Now, in, a, in an increasingly area of social media, we, we see that people can have wide reaches with their words, and humans are inherently comparative animals, and so we don't necessarily have a gauge for how much of me being heard is enough to satisfy me. We look around and we see what's possible, and we measure ourselves against that stick. Well, we're in a unique period now where people can see other people getting hundreds of thousands of likes and retweets and what have yous. And then if you see that, you know, only uh, 30 people read my most recent blog post, it, it just kind of stings in a way that maybe the dynamics were the same back in an era of print journalism, but it feels more viscerally destructive now. And I think that's why a lot of these debates kind of boil down to struggles over platform and people feeling like their right to free speech should be a right to a megaphone, a right to yeah, a right to be platform. heard. Yeah. yeah. And it's fundamentally not, at least not as it's constitutionally written, but I, I think that it feels that way to a lot of people. Well, you know, and, and with the journalism thing, you know, I feel like people, you know, when it was like, I don't know, like the local newspaper, there was a belief where, 
you know, there were certain bounds on everything. And, you know, because of sponsors and kind of how newsrooms worked, there were limits on things, you know. Um, you probably wouldn't be getting a lot of the uh, journalism out there that pushes the, the uh, you know, the standing social values as concerning to, like, race and gender as there are now. Like... Because that just would have been, you know, in a different news environment would have either been seen as inflammatory or just uncouth or, you know, what have you, rightly or wrongly, more wrongly. But, <laughs> but like, but people are, we're now in an era where we see all that stuff and everyone's just like, what, what is going on? Like, why is this getting a platform versus this stuff? I mean, I think that's, I think that every time I see a Vice article, you know, like, <laughs> Like, I, I don't know, you know, and it's just like, why is this getting oxygen versus this other thing that I believe, you know, deserves oxygen to breathe? You know, it's 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 just so weird. Like and and people it's just so weird how we see things anymore. Like the discourse is weird or like Twitter, like you could have a situation where like this happens a lot where like some something will happen and some group of people will have a take on things but like and then all of a sudden we elevate it and blame it on like the journalists or the dems or the republicans whereas it was just some people on twitter saying a thing and they don't actually have power, but like we like vaguely associate those people with the grander authorities and then be like, oh, well, they're speaking for them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that's like that's almost like the whole, uh, you know, like uh, what was it? Um, oh, there, there was a bunch of things with like Joe Biden about that, where people said he had these wild, crazy I mean, not even seeming to us what, you know, Evan and I wild and crazy, but, you know, these bigger, grander policy uh, ambitions. And then everyone was like, no, he's actually not. But I guess like a lot of people around him are <laughs> or in his coalition are. So it should. Yeah. It, but but needless. But but this is all to say that, yeah, there are weird power dynamics, especially when it comes to like media because that's what we see. And, you know, we've talked before how the power dynamics were so skewed in one direction. Like you, you know, you couldn't make any TV show or media that was disparaging of cops, you know, or anything mm -hmm. like that. Now we're like, I don't know. It's, it's like now we can, uh, you know, we can see nudity on TV. It's like, ah, crazy. <laughs> I don't ah, like Tony this. Soprano. What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, you can say shit. That's not good. That's not good <laughs> and upstanding. Like, you know, now we can talk about cops being bad. You know, some of them being bad. And it's like, ah, you know, some people don't like that. And who knows? Who knows? It's all about power. It is. And that's why that's why I get. That's really why you skeptical. need to share this podcast. <laughs> really though do it um <laughs> help help us, us achieve our right power for us help us achieve our right to 
an infinite platform. Come on. Yeah. Um, but no, that's why I get really skeptical of people who dismiss critical theory out of hand, because I think that it's been so useful in illuminating a lot of the interrelated power structures that for so long were either taken for granted or ignored. And so when I hear someone who's like, oh, you're just drinking the CRT Kool-Aid or whatever, I, I say, have you really like evaluated a world that ignores critical theory versus a world that includes it and decided that one is vastly better than the other on th in that direction? I don't think you have. I think you're just doing like an ego protective shutdown of something that challenges your beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Which happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are people and nobody wants to believe that they are doing bad or moving in the wrong direction. That's really psychologically uncomfortable. That's, that's cognitive dissonance, you know, yeah. it's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. You know, we I, all have to be the heroes of our own story. We we have to internally. Well, yeah, it's really weird to not be the hero of your own story. That that'd be that'd be a weird existence. Experience yourself in a second person. That'd be <laughs> weird. Like, yeah. So would your story not have a hero? Would it be like like a Linklater movie where it just kind of floats between people? Or would you be like a sidekick and like my hero is you and I experience my life in relation to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Although this is completely a tangent because I feel like we've kind of wrapped up on whatever that conversation was. Um, there, I, I watched this interesting video where there actually was a case where in an instance in a game, there was a mission where you played it as a second person game. So like first person is you are the guy. And then third person is like, you're like this camera, like floating behind the guy, you know, you see the guy, but you're just like not anyone present. Whereas in this specific instance, you were a guy you were no, you were a guy and you're watching some other guy do something and you were controlling that some other guy as yourself. It was just so interesting. how how did the camera track with it? So it was a driving game and your the character that you saw the perspective from was chasing you and okay. you were driving the car in front of it. So it was like kind of you know, not too far off from a third person perspective, but it was definitely from the viewpoint of somebody else. So just like a POV of a non you character. So what yeah. if you like got really far ahead of this guy? Would you like lose? Well, the one, the get one, the game wouldn't let you get too far ahead of him, but ah, the bastards. Yeah. But then there was also like this interesting part where, like I I'll, I may have to just send you the video, but like the way the AI worked, like it it wouldn't like ever let you like turn around in front of it. Like it always <laughs> made sure. But then like it was always trying to chase you no matter what. And and I guess there was in one instance where the game like blew up and was just <laughs> like, we don't we can't handle this. <laughs> we do not know how to proceed. It was too meta. <laughs> but but anyway do you do you have any more thoughts or ideas evan 
no, I've, I've tried to embrace the spirit of this conversation and I've just kind of said things as I've thought them in yeah. response. And I hope that that has been sufficient for, for what you hoped to get out of this. Yeah. Where, yeah, I don't know what I was hoping to get out of it either. It was just some sort of framework that I had been thinking of. Um, then yeah, I mean, just discussing ideas, man, it doesn't have That's to, what we do. And who knows? Maybe the idea wasn't super great. <laughs> Sometimes we, we don't know. You yeah. tell us right to podcast at adequately dot com. Yeah. Tell well, us we suck. You hey, can tell look. us you can tell us we suck. You have license to tell us we suck. If yeah. you share the podcast with your friend. Yeah. Y- you know, just tell us anything. Just email email. It's it's the past future. Um but I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I think that, uh, just about does it for us today. We would like to thank you for listening. We would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. It's great. Diddly doos. Um, but anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. Mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>